Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, friends. This is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 13. I feel like what started to shift things was coming to the end of myself and realizing that I'm not dying to fear and hopelessness. I'm just dying. Bethany Cole is a mental health therapist who has worked primarily within and for the queer community. Uh, She has a relational focus, working with clients to help integrate trauma in their stories, as well as to manage and develop access to a broader range of their own emotions. Uh, She and her wife currently live in Washington. Uh, I went to grad school with Bethany, and she is an incredible person, and I'm so excited to have her on the podcast today. Uh, But before we dive into some of that... A quick little announcement. Uh, My dear, dear friend, Kevin Garcia, uh, who has a podcast called A Tiny Revolution. If you all aren't listening to that, you need to go listen to it. Uh, He's coming to Seattle in a couple weekends, uh, and we're going to be doing a Seattle meetup. Uh, This is happening on Saturday, September 2nd. Uh, From 4 o'clock to 6 o'clock p.m. is going to just be a drop-in thing at Drip City Coffee Company in Seattle. Uh, All of the details are up on my Facebook page. So if you just go to facebook.com slash Matthias Roberts, you'll be able to find it there. We would love to see you there. Kevin and I are just going to be hanging out, drinking coffee. We'd love to meet some of you. Uh, Come join us downtown Seattle. We'll be there. Uh, So in thinking about this episode and what I wanted to cover this week, especially in light of everything that has been happening in the United States, uh, in Charlottesville, uh, with uh, the rise of nothing other than white terrorism, uh, I think a common feeling for everyone who is doing activism work uh, or who is even moderately aware of what's going on, I think we're all really tired uh and and i think it's okay to acknowledge that that tiredness of where for some of us we need to be pushing through that tiredness and keeping and keep going uh with the work that we need to be doing especially as white people uh i think it's also a really good practice to be aware of what we're feeling and to work with that Uh, And so I invited Bethany to join me on this episode today because she does such a good job of holding differing identities, uh, holding places of privilege and holding places where there isn't privilege. Uh, And we're having a conversation around self-care. And what does it look like to do self-care as white people? Uh, What does it look like to do self-care as queer people? Uh, How do we hold the fact that we are existing in places of where our privileges intersect in different ways? How do we pay attention to those things? How do we keep on fighting when we need to to keep fighting? And how do we take care of ourselves when it's time to take care of ourselves? 
Uh, one point that Bethany does bring up that I think is vitally important in doing self-care is that a part of self-care is to do our own racial identity work. Uh, so if you're coming into this conversation wondering about that, wondering what can I do, uh, I think a really good place to start, and I, I know I, I say this often, would be to jump back to episode three uh, with Dr. D'Angelo. If you haven't listened to that, listen to that and start doing some critical work around your racial identity, especially if you're a white person. Uh, that episode isn't going to be new information for anyone who isn't white, uh, but especially if you're a white person and haven't listened to episode three, do that before listening to this episode. Uh, and then you can can come back and, and kind of maybe look at some other ideas of, of what might be good self-care practices. Let's go ahead and dive in. Bethany, good morning. Morning. How are you doing today? I'm good. Um, yeah, caffeinated. Just got some coffee, so I'm good. feeling good. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah, me too. I, I have my coffee in hand as well, so it's yes. perfect. <laughs> So to start, uh, how do you identify, and then how would you say that your faith uh, has helped form that identity? Mm. That's something, well, I guess, to start, I think my faith, like, informs, it's it's continued to inform it, because I identify Mm -hmm. as a woman, and specifically a trans woman. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I identify as a Christian, so that's part of that. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I grew up Christian and have definitely reevaluated my faith, and I still identify as Christian even in the midst of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, that becomes kind of difficult. Um, and I identify as white, which feels very salient this week, especially. I mean, more and more so. I mean, it's always been true. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of identifying or owning that identity feels very important. Um, But specifically how my faith has informed, I guess, all of those identities. Mm. Um, Really, I feel like the way I understand God and Jesus specifically to be now, um, I understand like God wants me to be able to live into the fullness of who I am. Mm-hmm. Even though a lot of those identities are complicated and come with a lot of cultural baggage, mm-hmm. um, that, that God's all about me embracing my story and is about all of us kind of just embracing where we come from. And by that, I mean that all of the things don't have to necessarily be good mm-hmm. or like... Um, like whiteness specifically is one that I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Not that I have a lot of guilt around that because it's just how I was born and what it is, mm-hmm. but that our story as white people really does, I mean, it's not a positive story and we mm-hmm. kind of have to own that mm-hmm. as um, really just in recognition of reality mm-hmm. and out of kindness for the cost that we bear as white people. Mm-hmm. Um because, I mean, it's yes, it's privilege, but it's also white supremacy does not benefit anybody, mm-hmm. I'd say. But um, mm-hmm. so specifically, um, I guess it's a rather, this is a very windy answer to your question, I think, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which I think is how my brain processes. Um, but 
specifically because this is uh, queerology, mm-hmm. how my faith is also informed who I am as a trans person and as a bi person is that um, really God has again called me to embrace who I am. And someone once uh, told me, and it really kind of sent me for a loop, that Jesus didn't die so that I could be Jesus. Mm. He said, there's already one Jesus, we didn't need a second one. Mm. Um, So I was like, oh. He Mm. said that Jesus, um, that the story of the gospel and of the resurrection is that Jesus came and died and rose again so that you could be the best you you could be. So that no matter who you are, really where you come from, that out of the fullness of who you are, you can worship and you can make that—that mm-hmm. th- that is an act of worship is just living into who God has made you to be. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's always nuance to that. But I mean, it's that's kind of how I think my faith informs it. It continues to force me to have to return to my own story and say, like, mm-hmm. what's the story God's been writing? And there are parts of it that I wish weren't there. Mm-hmm. Um, that how can I be hospitable to the story God's been writing? How can I welcome it into my life and not try to split it off? Mm-hmm. Kind of a thing, not try to pretend that it's something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of, mm-hmm. like I said, some general swirly thoughts around that question. Right. My mind is going all kinds of different directions. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm thinking about like that, what that person told you, Jesus didn't die mm-hmm. So, so that for you to become another Jesus, uh, right? That idea of Jesus calls us into the fullness of ourselves, as opposed to being exact replicas of Him, right? Um, and I'm like, I'm curious about what that process of learning to embrace who you are has been like, because I think that requires a, a shifting from mm-hmm. a lot of. I know I was raised in this idea of like, we're supposed to be imitators of Christ. And so that means we perfectly modeled Jesus Mm -hmm. in a very specific way of what we were told that is. Yeah. Um, What was that process like for you to kind of shift into this is who I am. This is Bethany. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I think it was, well, I came from a similar um, background. Um, so I guess it starts with how I was raised. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a really, I would now say fundamentalist, although I wouldn't have for years. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have just said it was Christian, although now I'm looking back, it's like it was pretty fundamentalist, evangelical, mm-hmm. um, which are categories and don't really speak to the complexity of those categories. But it's it was very much, yeah, a similar thing that, we're saved by grace, but that we're called to imitate Christ in a very specific kind of a way. Mm-hmm. And for years, I kind of went back and forth with like, well, if we're saved by grace, and if all of that's true, then why am I still, and this is a very large-ish theological question mm-hmm. that I don't have the answer for. It's like, why am I trying to live up to everybody else's expectations and be something else? Mm. And really, why am I not just dying to selfish desires or whatever, like that thing that we're 
this this always pointed to of take up your cross Mm -hmm. and follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. Really, I had to come down to this spot where I realized that I wasn't dying to um, live into, I guess, the hope of the gospel. I wasn't dying. I wasn't setting aside fear. Mm. I wasn't setting aside, I guess, my own prejudices. I wasn't, I think fear was the biggest thing, Mm. honestly, that I wasn't setting that aside, Mm. even though, like, the text says that perfect love casts out fear. Mm. Um, And so part of it was shifting and, like, actually, for me, actually, like, believing more fully, I think, what the gospel says, that really Jesus has it covered Mm. Um, so that was part of it and say, because I went back and forth, like I went to, my undergrad was in, um, biblical theology and Mm. pastoral leadership. And so, and the reason for that was partly that I was trying to really, I was trying to, in a way, try to cure myself of being trans. I Mm. kind of threw myself into theology as a way to say, all right, how do I understand this? Or more baseline for me was how do I be good? Mm. Um, that I deeply wanted to be good and to get, this was a bad thing in my mind at the time. I was like, I knew what the evangelical culture I grew up in said. I knew what just the larger culture said in the 80s and 90s. It was definitely not the same world that we live in now as far as um, having like positive trans stories out there. Um, So everything was telling me that who I was was a shameful thing, that I couldn't be who I was. And I'd hear those messages that you hear as a kid, like, oh, just be yourself. Like, that's, I have no idea what that means, Mm -hmm. is what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. I said, I don't know how to be myself because I've only ever tried to be someone else. So part of it was, long answer back to your question as to, like, what started to shift things. Um, was coming to the end of myself and realizing that I'm not dying to, you know, fear and hopelessness. I'm just dying is what mm. it felt like. Mm. I has had I had depression, anxiety, panic attacks, all of that. Um, like the suicidal ideation you hear about, like that. I think it's like 70% of trans people report suicidal ideation and 40% attempt. Mm -hmm. I was in that 70%. Um, I never attempted because of a different theological thing. I was terrified. told that if you killed yourself, you'd go to hell, like -hmm. like that would. So as problematic as that theology was, it kept me alive. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was definitely not in a, it wasn't Mm life-giving. I was just kind of getting by, like my wife tells me now. Like she looks back and says, "Yeah, you were just kind of like muddling through then," mm. um, which is not the life that I see we're called to in the gospel. Yeah. Um, I see that we're called to live life and like live it to the fullest. Right, right. You know. Um, so that was kind of the shift for me. Was. Mm. And also, part of it was um, realizing that, so I'm a therapist, that's Mm -hmm. what I do, Mm -hmm. Um, and actually when I was um, interviewing grad schools, uh, one of them that I looked at was a uh, pretty well-known, fairly conservative seminary on the west coast here but one really helpful thing they told me was like the most important thing you bring into a counseling session as a therapist is you yourself it's Mm -hmm. kind of like 
the base of, he drew like a little pyramid and that was like the base. And he said, this is going to be the biggest thing you bring in is just you, your life experience, your story. On top of that is maybe like what you believe about the world. On top of that is modalities. And on top of that would be skills. Um, but that really stuck with me because I thought, well, if I can't, if I'm trans and I'm not, because for a while I did the thing of, um, well, I, once I had more vocabulary to put to it to be able to like say, yes, I'm trans and not just like this kind of unspoken feeling that I have of, well, I, that I'm a woman and nothing about that was being like mirrored back to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was able to put words to it, um, I just decided to repress it and go with the status quo. Um, but I realized in thinking about going into this work as a therapist that I'm going to bring the entirety of myself into a session in order to help someone else get in touch with the entirety of themselves to help kind of hear them and work with them into healing Mm -hmm. and I thought if I'm holding part of myself back like I don't know how helpful that would be to anybody Mm -hmm. um and it wasn't just for that it's like I don't know that how much good this would do me at all you know Mm -hmm. but really it was just a combination of things of kind of coming to the end of myself and realizing I can't do this anymore I can't just hold on to I guess in some ways what I viewed it as then was like the privilege of being seen as respectable in the Mm -hmm. Christian world, Mm -hmm. as being seen as like a good Christian Mm -hmm. um, who had everything going for them kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it felt like giving all that up. But really, (laughs) looking back, I wasn't giving up anything really. Mm -hmm. I was just giving up, yeah, that fear and hopelessness that Mm -hmm. is antithetical to the gospel even though so much so many of us live in it um anyway those were a lot of words (laughs) um so i said a lot there um oh i'm thinking about like so in in talking about like embracing who we are mm -hmm. you you had mentioned earlier something about like that includes you didn't say this in quite so many words but that that includes Mm -hmm. embracing the hard parts too like right. not not splitting off parts of our stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I want to maybe key in on that a little bit because yeah. that feels like such an important point of regardless of what our stories are, regardless of what mm-hmm. we're kind of struggling with. I think there's that tendency to kind of like look at past selves or look at the hard parts of our stories and say, that's not me. Right. Um, and try to distance ourselves from those parts of ourselves. Um Whereas what you're saying is seems a little bit different than that. I'd be curious if you could maybe talk about that a little bit more. What does it look like to embrace those hard parts? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for kind of cluing in on that. I would say that embracing the hard parts. Well, it's not first. It doesn't come right away. It's right. not a one time thing. <laughs> um, I think it looks. Well, a few things. One is sort of a stance of welcome and of hospitality to those parts. And that might sound a little glib or like Mm. a little too poetic at first. Mm -hmm. Um, But really, in many ways, it looks like it can it looks like grieving. Like what's Mm. the 
So in all of those things that we, the parts of ourselves or the parts of our story we don't like, because it doesn't have to be, I talked a little bit about it being, um, or at least it seemed to be focusing on um, identity pieces, Mm -hmm. but I think it's really anything that's happened to us in our lives, be it trauma or really um, just things that we wish hadn't happened. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of that looks like accepting and the path of acceptance isn't just kind of what gets portrayed as a Zen kind of like, even though it's not Zen, but like a kind of um, maybe more emotionless acceptance of, yes, this is my, this is true about me and I'm going to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like, it's not like telling somebody to walk it off or rubbing some dirt on it to mm. accept parts of themselves. Mm. It's, I think the, the image I have in my mind a lot of the time when I'm thinking of with, about myself and also working with people is almost of the, so the way I, so I guess precursor to that is the way I look at our, our minds is that there are more adult parts of our mind and there are more very, very young parts of our mind. Mm. And I think a lot of the very powerful, just raw emotions come from very young parts of our mind. Mm. So I imagine it as being the adult parts of our mind in many ways we're going back to those memories or even in the moment where attending to those young parts of our mind, just the very raw emotions, things like the, the sadness that we really feel about something that happened, just the, just the pain that you can't put a name to, just the, mm. just the hurt, mm. that there's another part that says, yeah, yeah, that's true. Mm. That's part of us. And just the image of an adult, like like a mother being able to sit like with her daughter who is just um, like hurt herself and who's crying, where she doesn't hopefully doesn't just tell her daughter, stop crying, it's going to be fine. You're just scared. You didn't really hurt yourself. But to sit down, to get down on her level and just hold her and let her cry it out, and say, I hear you. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm here. Um, So I think it's a stance of empathy Mm. is the sort of the switch of being able to have empathy for, in an odd way, maybe sounding empathy for ourselves, Mm. um, for who we were at the time. So for me, that's, I guess, speaking to my story, it looks like looking at, you know, the times I didn't come out or... um, and maybe regrets I have that, well, because in transparency, there's times when I look back and I think, well, why didn't I say anything then? Mm-hmm. And of course I have the, I have the experience now of knowing that I could survive it. Mm-hmm. And I'm also an adult. Mm-hmm. That wasn't always true as a child. Mm-hmm. We really are powerless. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's recognizing that now as an adult, recognizing that reality, and then having just empathy and compassion for who I was and saying, yeah, of course you didn't say anything then because you were scared. You knew what would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's going to look different for different people, but I think it I think it does stand or it does start from a stance of um, empathy and compassion. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that gets us into a category of 
self-compassion or self-care a little bit of being able to hold those seemingly disparate parts of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that was it's kind of like the book that we read early on in grad school, um, uh, Braided Selves. Mm-hmm. Her whole thought there that we have multiple self-states and we are different. We're all the same. We're always the same person. Mm-hmm. But we're there's different states. Like I have a part of myself that is, I mean, I can even just think about it in other ways where I get really fired up about something and I really want to, it's a more fiery part of myself, a more Mm -hmm. passionate part of myself, a more, um, maybe more of an advocate part. Mm -hmm. And then another part that is more of a bridge builder and they're both me. Mm -hmm. Um, Some parts of it are more, I guess, tapping into different emotions, but I think it's key being able to hold different emotional states and have access to those. Mm. Something feels similar to that with being able to hold and not split off the parts of ourselves that we don't like, that we're able to sit with something that doesn't feel good, Mm. to bear that discomfort, because there's another part that gives us a sense of security and mm-hmm. safety that we're going to be able to survive that awful feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know that it comes as easily without that internal sense of security right, right. Um, that I think comes from secure relationships mm-hmm. that we don't really generate it on our own. Right. Um, that's my, that's kind of my bias there, but mm-hmm. um so I think it looks like a lot of things. I think it can tangibly or practically holding those split off parts of ourselves can look like um, mindfulness. Mm. Um, it can look like, yeah, and there are specific therapeutic models. Um, there's one called DBT. That's dialectical behavioral therapy, which I'll just mention because a good piece of that is um, – non-judgmental acceptance Mm -hmm. of our feelings and our our emotions and um Mm -hmm. and i think that's really that's really helpful to just say okay i'm experiencing this this feels awful Mm -hmm. and of course it feels awful right now Mm -hmm. like i'm not broken because it feels awful um i think that's kind of what it looks like of having an maybe an internal model of being held. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And we need that needs to come from some place. We kind of need to have some experience of being held. Right. If not from a primary caretaker, then a really dear friend or mm-hmm. a partner or mm-hmm. a therapist, somebody mm-hmm. emotionally, mentally, psychically held, because you, you don't want your therapist holding you. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, I was like, I'm going to put that out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, so I think that's the a general feel and also maybe the beginnings of some practical things, right. um, which we could get into the practical more if you wanted to. I'm not... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because like, I think you bring up this concept of kind of like care and self-care tying mm-hmm. into all of this and, yeah. and it's, it's, it's kind of like different sides of the same coin kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking about, cause like, especially thinking about like this past week 
uh, in mm-hmm. Charlottesville, the racial yeah. tensions that are kind of bubbling up that have always been there, but are rearing their heads in very obvious ways. Right. Um, and I think th- th- there's like, as people who hold different intersections and it's different for everyone listening, different intersections of privilege and not having privilege. Um, right. And mm-hmm. this week is, I think, impacting every one of us in different ways. Yeah. Um, and for you and I as white people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as we sit with the impact of mm-hmm. not just this week, but the impact of hard things happening. Mm-hmm. What does it look like to care for ourselves mm. in in the midst of the swirling everything? Because yeah. it doesn't just go away. No. Um, no, it doesn't. Um, yeah, and kind of, kind of that... Um, what I'd mentioned before of that sense of being held. Sometimes there's a feeling or there's a implication that kind of this too will pass. Mm. But for some things we don't see the end in sight. Like, um, so when I think this week, I guess where mind or my mind goes, um, and really, I mean, like, like you said, this has been happening for, a very long time, mm-hmm. um, but especially I would say since November and really the election as mm-hmm. well, things have been. I, we've been constantly bombarded with news, and it's as people who, specifically as like white queer people, we are like you said an interesting intersection of holding, um, like privilege and representation by being in the. I kind of the well represented and I'd say maybe overly well represented and the like the dominant racial experience. Mm-hmm. And yet a lot of the voices that we're hearing out there are also targeting queer people in the very same breath or at the very least um at the very least in the same kind of sentiment mm-hmm. that the same some of the same voices or some of the same feelings that are targeting people of color are also targeting queer people. And so there's, I, I think some of the work of self care in this is really ongoing, sustainable self preservation while we do some advocacy in whatever way that looks like. Mm. Um, Cause I do believe this is my belief that as white people, we all bear the responsibility of ending racism, systemic racism in this mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. I mean, because white people invented race. Mm-hmm. I mean, I should say folks of European descent invented race as a social construct. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I think the majority of the responsibility should land on us to end it not that we're the only ones because of course that we we have our blind spots that we need to work on mm-hmm. um and when we get called out to kind of um attend to those um but it gets to be a difficult thing for a lot of us because i mean especially just in the race conversation because i've seen a lot of white queer people come into 
um, just the very first beginnings of being able to name kind of having any kind of racial identity mm. where they say, well, no, I don't have any privilege. Like I'm, I'm gay or I'm trans. Like, mm. and yeah, you are gay or you are trans and also you are white or you are able-bodied or you are not neurodivergent. Mm-hmm. Um, you are from a middle to like, you're from a higher socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it looks very different depending on who you are. Mm. And so self-care is going to be contextual based on who you are. Um, but I think like doing a lot of that identity work is really key to and integrating those parts of yourselves. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think that we can really have a s- sense of security. And by security, I mean like I'm thinking of like a house with a firm foundation. Like if mm-hmm. there's a, an earthquake or something that it will, it will shake and it will stay mm-hmm. standing. There might be like a crack and like some plaster or something, but but it can survive it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a a foundational piece is doing a lot of our own identity formation. And um, some of your podcast has already kind of talked about this, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of it is really just learning American history mm-hmm. in in kind of that non-judgmental acceptance kind of a way of saying, all right, this is the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one was a different lens. Mm-hmm. That book mm-hmm. was that, was that Tanaki? A different mirror, yeah. yeah. A different mirror, mm-hmm. that's the one. Mm-hmm. Um, that that one really helped me to kind of just see it from a different, well, I said different lens, but to look at American history through a different lens, even though it is, the title is a different mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, and to non-judgmentally look at what, like, what's the story, not only pointing to kind of like what I was saying before of like accepting the parts of our lives that we don't care for. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of this work is accepting the parts of our collective story as white people that we don't care for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that... Mm-hmm. Maybe we're, I've heard white people say, I don't like the word white, don't say it. Or I don't want to be a white person. I don't identify as a white person. Mm-hmm. Even though most of their life, they don't really have anything else to identify as a uh, a white American in many ways, but don't want to carry the baggage of that, mm-hmm. which is understandable. It's in uh, many ways a horrific history. Mm-hmm. And also, it would be doing such a disservice and such a dishonor to not only our brothers and sisters of color, I should say our siblings, to ourselves, mm-hmm. that we're cutting off a part of our own history and we're trying to make ourselves seem like we just kind of magically appeared on this continent out of nowhere, mm-hmm. which does not, to me, does not strike me as hospitable to our own history, our own ethnicity, our own past, to not actually own the harm that we've done mm-hmm. it's um that i don't know if that looks or feels different to people but i think mm-hmm. that's part of a maybe initial stance and then yeah mm-hmm. yeah because that's like that's a really interesting point because i think t- to kind of key in on that a little bit like that owning mm-hmm. of the difficult part of our stories which we have been talking about but like that mm-hmm. self-care like that is yes. a form of self-care in itself yeah as opposed to that kind of like that idea of, oh, I feel so bad for people of color. This week has mm-hmm. been so hard for them. Uh, look right. at those terrible racists out there. Like that mm-hmm. is a movement outward, a projection 
Exactly. And yeah. you're talking about an internal turning that focus in on ourselves um, mm-hmm. as a form of self-care that might not feel so much like care in the moment. It's true. And so that's, I guess that's a very good point. And the sustainability piece of that mm. is, I guess, as oppressed people, as queer people, it's knowing, well, I guess two things that it in the moment it doesn't feel like care. And mm. so that's something that we're in this, I think that very much we're in this advocacy work and we're in this work for the long haul. Mm-hmm. And so we want to care for ourselves well in that. And um, I think when we talk about self-care, it's usually, it looks like taking breaks. And I think that is so, yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> so valuable. And I think it might look like t- taking breaks from specific things or specific mediums um it might look like backing away from social media for a little while Mm -hmm. it might look like doing your own just like naming maybe journaling maybe going to your therapist or talking to a friend of yeah these are the feelings that i have that are coming up Mm um because i think with all of that of some the grief really of owning our story we really want to attend to where we are in the moment as well and that i think even though this might feel like in some ways counterintuitive because people say like well wait no we and it might some of what i said might feel like it speaks against this too but um i hope that it all i'm trying to hold all of it mm-hmm. um that yeah there's you know, we kind of bear responsibility for ending racism and we're not the white saviors. Mm-hmm. Like that's just not realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not on each individual person to end the whole thing. We're not, um, we're not quite that grand, or at least I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But kind of attending to where like what's going on in my life? Like where is it showing up? Where am I? Like where is there a microaggression where I'm walking down the street and I notice my hand clench on my purse a little more because I've noticed, like unconsciously noticed, like a black man mm-hmm. approaching or something. Mm-hmm. And instead of beating myself up, feeling the appropriate maybe like because that guilt will come in there. Right. Um, and I think there's a difference, I'll say it here, I think there's a difference between guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. Um, shame being that feeling that I am bad, like that I am at my core just a bad person, mm-hmm. that I'm not worthy of love, that I'll always be this way. And guilt being the feeling of violating my own like internal moral code. Mm-hmm. Like I did something I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Like this is not... Um, which is, again, if you think about it in that term, like in that way of splitting off versus not splitting, if we're not, um, if we do something that's not in line with our internal moral code, we're going to feel a little bit bad because it's like, oh, this isn't who I want to be. Like, this isn't what the kind of thing I want to do. But being able to name that and attend to it in that same kind of way of having, of saying, Maybe not, uh, maybe not letting ourselves off the hook, but of saying, oh, "Of course, mm-hmm. of course, I did that." Mm-hmm. Like, how could I not? We were, 
are steeped in this culture. Race is something that goes deep. It's in implicit bias. If it was just explicit, if it was just like a, I don't know, some concrete things that we all kind of said yes to and assented to mm -hmm. and that we could just say no to the next day, that would be easy to get rid of. Mm -hmm. But in many ways, this is so very ingrained. And so just realizing that we're not we're not the saviors. We are just humans. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're going to screw up, maybe to expect that discomfort and expect that failure. Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't mean that we're bad people. Um, it means we've been born into a wicked system mm -hmm. and that it's impacted us significantly. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, I guess, that's specifically as white people. That's kind of the work that for all of us, um, as a queer person, I think the way I, at least the way I think about that self-care is that we also bear a different toll mm -hmm. of just existing in this world. Mm -hmm. And at the same time that we're holding, so we need a lot of hands to hold all this stuff, I guess, mm -hmm. or at least to be able to hold in our mind. But at the same time that we're holding the reality of the privilege we have in the world, there's the diff's privilege as well. And mm -hmm. being able to notice well, I'm feeling really exhausted lately. Mm -hmm. And it could very well be because I'm living in a deeply transphobic and homophobic world, very heteronormative, cisnormative world. Mm -hmm. um, what that was not, like the society wasn't really set up with me in mind um, or with, with us in mind. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we're trying to carve out a space for ourselves in the world. And so... Um, I had a, a question like this when I, um, the class that you and I went through, the multicultural perspectives class, I don't know if we went through at the same time, but um, Dr. Hollins, uh, Dr. Caprice Hollins, if anyone wants to Google her, she is amazing, but, um, <laughs> um, but she reached out to me in that class and she said, how are you doing at this school? And it, I was floored because... I think she was one of the few people who had actually asked what it was. my experience was like as a trans person at the school. Mm. Um, and I was really honored, and I told her that, and I said, the thing, the question that I asked her then was about the class, because I was, also this was some of the first work I had done around developing a racial identity was in that class. Mm -hmm. um, although I'd been... You know, this was after Ferguson, mm. and so I'd been doing some thinking, more critical thinking after that a little bit. Mm. Um, and so I asked her, I said, well, I realized that, that I'm coming into this class with a particular lens as a trans woman, a queer trans woman specifically, mm -hmm. um, who's white. And I said, I so a lot of what you're saying about like the the experiences of people of color resonate in some way with me, but not exactly the same way. Right. And I said, how do I navigate that? And what she told me was that as you get in touch with where you've been oppressed and where you do your, like where you do your identity formation about around where um, you've experienced disprivilege, mm -hmm. you can use that to empathize with maybe what people of color could be going through. You can do some translating mm -hmm. um, without equating it as being the same. Because mm -hmm. um, unless, like if I was 
like a black trans woman, then of course I'd know what it's like to be black, but I have no idea what it's like to be black. Right. Um, but sometimes when I hear some of the things, like more when I read some things, um, it's th- that black woman experience. Like I can resonate with that in a different way, and mm. but it feels familiar. I can get in touch with that part of myself. Mm. Um, and so I think that's kind of, at least that gave me a place to start and I really appreciated kind of that what she'd said to me that mm-hmm. um, that we can use that not as a way to say hey we're exactly the same right. but to say I wonder if it might be like this yeah. and just to have an open handed kind of thing where we are able to kind of own our own experience mm-hmm. and let other people be other people and have their own experience too yeah, yeah. I think I think maybe to close yeah I'd be curious like specifically like what Mm -hmm. what does self-care look like for you like what some practicality of like exactly um, yeah i'd be curious if you're willing to maybe talk about some of your self-care practices and of course it's good to get have me get practical because i can get (laughs) get very um dreamy and swirly Um, i love it but (laughs) (laughs) um but so what i do um I think often it comes moment by moment, mm-hmm. and some of it is, some of, a lot of it is that stance that we've covered a lot of, but practical things are taking a step back from social media sometimes, or certain parts of social media. Mm-hmm. I'm, on, I'm on Instagram a lot more these days, mm-hmm. <laughs> scrolling pictures of my friends' babies and dogs mm-hmm. and sunsets and things, and... Mm-hmm. Um, and this actually gets into, um, I actually posted a thing on Twitter this morning that was a little more, um, maybe I should have put more nuance to it. And mm-hmm. somebody sort of called me out on it where I said that dissociation is not self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they said, um, I think it can be in small doses. And mm-hmm. of course they were right. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by dissociation is it can look like distraction, mm-hmm. But it's something to distract ourselves from the distress we feel in the present moment. Um, it's just kind of a fancy term for that. And mm-hmm. in a in huge doses, dissociation was not helpful. It's kind of that switch between watching two episodes of something on Netflix mm-hmm. versus seven, where <laughs> you kind of know the feeling afterward, right? right where right. two or three feels good, seven you have a hangover. Mm-hmm. It's like that <laughs> didn't feel good. <laughs> Um, and, and so there is kind of an internal barometer of knowing after the fact, like, okay, that ice cream cone, that was great. Mm. Eating the whole thing, not so great. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everyone has a different, um, er- everyone has kind of a different, uh, capacity and need for self-care, mm. um, which is, yeah, so it can look like dissociation, like a distraction for a little bit, because mm-hmm. sometimes I think that's the best defense that we have against overwhelming feelings. And so yeah. even in the dissociation, even when we're doing something that might not seem like quote-unquote healthy, mm-hmm. if we have compassion for ourselves and that to say, all right, I did that thing. Mm-hmm. Of course I did. Um, maybe I'll learn from this and next time... I won't watch as many because I know I don't feel good afterward. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it can look like things like that, like taking some time for yourself. But also self-care can look like, um, for me, it looks like 
we have a few flowers. It looks like watering my flowers or a tiny bit of gardening. And I know a lot of people don't have that. So it might look like if you know that you don't feel good or you know that you can't think straight or your mental health doesn't do well if your apartment is an upside-down mess, Mm -hmm. self-care might look like just doing your laundry Mm -hmm. or picking the pillows off off the floor and putting them back on the couch Mm -hmm. or... I'm looking around my house right now because we just moved. And so (laughs) all of this is, yeah, my self-care is going to be continuing to unpack um, and making my place feel like like my own and not Mm. um, like I'm living out of a a suitcase. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's going to be contextual for everybody Mm -hmm. um, that self-care in – many ways can be kind of that eat your vegetables thing that doesn't feel good in the moment, but it's good for you. Um, Might be like yoga. I don't do a lot of yoga, but I know a lot of people that's really great. Mm -hmm. Um, I journal. Mm -hmm. I go on walks when I can, Mm -hmm. even if it's like I've seen six clients in a day or something and I don't have time to walk. Um, Getting out, taking a breath, finding those moments and those spaces of um, kind of awe and peace mm. and getting in touch with kind of your body again, stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's helpful. Music is, and a lot of these things are practical, um, just like momentary things where it's not like going to, solve all of the crises or mental health things in our lives but sometimes i mean after a really hard session when um sometimes i need to watch a really funny video on youtube Mm -hmm. and laugh and get the you know get the those chemicals flowing in my brain Mm -hmm. um and i think it is does come down to some care of moderation i think i'd put self-care in the category of kindness Mm -hmm. that is this kind to myself? Um, and so it's kind of that question to always be asking. It's, all right, am I going to feel better or worse after this? Is this life-giving or or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it might be picking up a new skill or it might be um, kind of looking at the things that you already do. And I, in many ways, I think that's the most helpful thing. It's like, mm-hmm. what do you already do? For self-care, um, where are your spaces for that? Is it church? Is it um, some friends? Is it um, getting out in nature? Mm-hmm. Is it exercise or writing or reading? Mm. I'm a I'm a big reader, so mm. all of these things I see as like little sabbaths yeah. in the midst of the work, you know. That mm-hmm. um, there's a good reason that that was in. That the Sabbath was included because I think we need it, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. so I think that's kind of my thought because really this work is so important and our survival is so important that right. these sustainable practices of or the things that will help us keep coming back to doing the work um, of finding the places where we can recharge. Mm-hmm. Um, and really the things that even if in the moment they don't feel great, like, uh, I just want to, I want to hole up in my house and not see anybody, right. which sometimes feels good. Sometimes I need to get out and see people, Right, right, right. you know, 
Ah, Bethany, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, I mean, honestly, it's, it's lovely to talk through it too. Mm -hmm. It's helpful for me as well, Mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, we all need it, especially this week when everything feels so, so overwhelming when we're constantly bombarded by social media and information, Mm -hmm. um, that how are we able to engage and continue to do this really important work yeah. while still attending to ourselves? Yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. You can find Bethany on Twitter at Bethany Joy C, like the first three letters of Seattle S E A, Bethany Joy C. Uh, Quirology is on Twitter at Quirology Pod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Chorology is produced with support from listeners just like you. Uh, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to find out how you can get involved with supporting Chorology. Uh, one way of doing that is by leaving a review on iTunes. Uh, you can do that by going to iTunes or going to MatthiasRoberts.com review. Uh, it'll take you right there. I'd love it if you'd leave a review. And as always, I would love to hear from you. Uh, just head over to my website. Let me know what you think. If you have ideas of people to be on the podcast let me know Uh, and until next week we'll talk to you all later bye when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply